The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. December 3rd. He was born for obscurity for a day that would live in infamy. December 3rd, 1902 marked the birth in Nago, Japan of Mitsuo Fuchida. His story, told in his own words, reveals the mark he left on history and the mark God left on him. I must admit I was more excited than usual as I awoke that morning at 3 a.m. Hawaii time. As general commander of the Air Squadron, I made last-minute checks on the intelligence information reports in the operations room before going up to warm my single-engine three-seater plane. The sunrise in the east was magnificent above the white clouds as I led 360 planes towards Hawaii. I knew my objective to surprise and cripple the American naval forces in the Pacific. Like a hurricane out of nowhere, my torpedo planes, dive bombers, and fighters struck suddenly with indescribable fury. It was the most thrilling exploit of my career. With the end of the war, my military career was over. I became more and more unhappy, especially when the war crime trials opened in Tokyo. Though I was never accused, General Douglas MacArthur summoned me to testify on several occasions. As I got off the train one day at Tokyo's Shibuya Station... I saw an American distributing literature. He handed me a pamphlet entitled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan. What I read eventually changed my life. On that Sunday, while I was in the air over Pearl Harbor, an American soldier named Jacob DeShazer had been on KP duty in an army camp in California. When the radio announced the sneak demolishing of Pearl Harbor, he shouted, Jap, just wait and see what we'll do to you. One month later, he volunteered for a secret mission with the Jimmy Doodle Squadron, a surprise raid on Tokyo. After the bombing raid, they flew on towards China but ran out of fuel and were forced to parachute into Japanese-held territory. During the next 40 long months in confinement, DeShazer was cruelly treated, but after 25 months, the U.S. prisoners were given a Bible to read. There in a Japanese POW camp, he read and read and eventually came to understand that the book was more than a historical classic. After DeShazer was released, he returned to Japan as a missionary, and God's providence gave Fuchida that track he had written. Fuchida continues, The peaceful motivation I had read about was exactly what I was seeking. Since the American had found it in the Bible, I decided to purchase one myself, despite my traditional Buddhist heritage. In the ensuing weeks, I read this book eagerly. I came to the climatic drama, The Crucifixion. I read in Luke twenty-three thirty-four the prayer of Jesus Christ at his death, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I was impressed that I was certainly one of those for whom he had prayed. The many men I had killed had been slaughtered in the name of patriotism, for I did not understand the love that Christ wishes to implant within every heart. Right at that moment, I seemed to meet Jesus for the first time. I understood the meaning of his death as a substitute for my wickedness. And so in prayer, I requested him to forgive my sins and change me from a bitter, disillusioned ex-pilot into a well-balanced Christian with purpose in living. I believe with all my heart that those who will direct Japan and all other nations in the decades to come must not ignore the message of Christ. 
he is the only hope for this world. And it says here, Mitsuo Fuchida came to know God personally through reading and studying the Bible, God's message to humanity. Do you regularly read and study the Bible? It has the power to change your life just as dramatically as it did Mitsuo Fuchida's. And it ends with Psalm 119, verse 37. Turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. It's December 3rd, and four more days it'll be the anniversary of uh, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And once again, I'm going through the Ken Burns War series on the war, meaning the Second World War. Sure is good to know Christ. I'm going to read you Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Okay, we're going to be in Exodus 22, verse 1 through 33. We're going to do an entire chapter again for the third time in a row, which is very rare to ever do it. Usually it's a couple of verses, but uh, this is like the last two chapters. It's more filled with information. There's actually, I'm sorry, if I said Exodus, I meant Leviticus. Um, I got somebody over there scratching his head saying, what? Um, it's Leviticus chapter 22. And um, there is actually only one really great Christological verse in here. The rest of them are uh, necessary parts of the law of Moses. And I hope that you'll enjoy it despite the, the routine nature of it. But I have to tell you, the people that attend online will email me and they will say, um, uh, you know, during the prophecy updates once in a while, you'll say, the only reason why I do these prophecy updates is to get people to watch the sermons. And they say, well, I decided to watch one of the sermons. And they'll be like in some dubious passage like Levitical dietary laws. And they'll say, well, I'll watch that. And uh, the next thing they know, they start right at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, and they've watched every single one of them because they see that Christ is on every single page. And then inevitably, they say, well, I want to know what the rest of it says. So they go back to Genesis, and they start there, and I've got people that comment on each sermon as they go through there. That is where my heart is, is that people want to know this word because it points to Christ Jesus in the most marvelous way. And so... Uh, it, it, it's a very wonderful thing. And I hear some noise over there that uh, if that continues, I'm sorry. Um, we had a different setup today. And so if you hear some noises during the sermon, and I'm speaking as much to the people online as anybody else's, uh, uh, it's just that we had a, a different setup. And uh, so we're getting back into the regular order. But anyway, we'll get into uh, Leviticus 22 and we'll read the chapter first and then we'll uh, evaluate it. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, and that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. Say to them, Whoever of all your descendants throughout your generations who goes near the holy things, which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has his uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. 
Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or has a discharge shall not eat the holy offerings until he is clean. And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who has an emission of semen or whoever touches any creeping thing by which he would be made unclean or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean and afterward he may eat the holy offerings because it is his food. Whatever dies naturally or is torn by beasts, he shall not eat. To defile himself with it, I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my ordinance, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby. If they profane it, I, the Lord, sanctify them. No outsider shall eat the holy offering. One who dwells with the priest or a hired servant shall not eat the holy thing. But if the priest buys a person with his money, he may eat it. And one who is born in his house may eat his food. If the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she may not eat of the holy offerings. But if the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no children and has returned to her father, uh, father's house as in her youth, she may eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. And if a man eats the holy offering unintentionally, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one fifth to it. They shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to bear the guilt of trespass when they eat their holy offerings, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel, and say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whichever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a free will offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. Nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as the bread of your God, because their corruption is in them, and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day and thereafter it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Whether it is a cow or you, do not kill both her and her young on the same day. And when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. On the same day it shall be eaten, you shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. In this chapter, there are several subdivisions. The first section is directed to the responsibilities of the priests. Then comes a short section on the rights of the priesthood and those who may, to some extent, join in those rights. After that is a section on suitable offerings and those which are to be rejected. And finally, there is a short section which further defines sacrificial parameters. 
These are certainly not the end of the sacrifices mentioned in Leviticus, but they are a necessary part prior to what lies ahead. One would think that with all of the detail and all of the repetition in this book, the people would have not only known what to do, but would have done it. Or if they did these things, they would at least have done them properly. Think it through. We have the Lord. He has established a priesthood which performs at a specific sanctuary. And what they do is based on specific guidelines. The things that are brought to them are based on minute details of what is acceptable and what is not. The people were aware of these things. And so if they didn't want to do them as detailed, then why do them at all? Again, think it through. In order for the offering to be accepted, it had to meet these specific criteria. As the offering is to the Lord, and as mandated by the Lord, then it would make no sense at all to offer anything at all unless it was properly done, right? Why would you go to work if you knew you were not only going to not get paid, but that you would also be beaten for showing up? And the reason for this is that you refuse to wear the right uniform. If you did, you would get paid and you wouldn't get beaten up. But as long as you wear the wrong one, there's no benefit in even going, much less going in appropriately. This is what Israel is being instructed on, and so they know what to expect if they didn't pay heed to what they were supposed to do. And yet, they didn't do what they were supposed to do. Our text verse comes from Isaiah 43, it's verses 27 and 28. Your first father sinned, and your mediators have transgressed against me. Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary. I will give Jacob to the curse and Israel to reproaches. This isn't just an arbitrary verse about Israel failing to pay heed. Instead, they had been told, such as here in Leviticus. They were warned again, such as in Deuteronomy. And they were continuously warned throughout their history. On one page, there is disobedience. On the next page, there is punishment. And on the next, there is mourning and repentance. What a bunch of dolts, yes? Well, let's not be too finger-pointy in that. In the church, we have a far better covenant based on far better promises and much more latitude in what we can and cannot do. And yes, we have also exacting specifications laid out for us to do them. And yet, with a Bible in every house and a church on every corner, we can't seem to do any better than Israel did. We have perverts in the pulpit We have sacrifices which are tainted with immorality, and we have flowing discharges of licentious behavior oozing out of the pews of church after church after church. It's hard to imagine how this can be. In particular, the churches which today openly condone homosexuality and every other perverse type of behavior one can imagine. Like Israel of old, do they somehow think that the Lord will ignore this? Do they think Israel's bringing a maimed, blind, or stolen animal to the altar is somehow different than their tainted spiritual offerings? And what about each one of us? Where are we in our devotion to Christ? Where are we in our holy and acceptable offerings? If he were reading your heart right now, and he is, do you think what he pries out of it will be pleasing to him? What are you doing here today? If it is supposedly to be pleasing to the Lord, well then, you'd better get on working, being pleasing to the Lord. A standard was given to Israel. A standard is given to us. You shall therefore be holy, because the Lord your God named Jesus is holy. 
This is the lesson we're to see in these passages, and it's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is for and of the priesthood. It's verses 1 through 16. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, here we have the standard formula for introducing a new section of thought by the Lord. The Lord speaks to Moses, indicating a new set of instructions and laws are forthcoming. The last section dealt with that which made a priest suitable for ministering to the Lord or excluding him from his duties. This will continue with that. There are times when they would naturally become unclean. When such times arose, they were to abstain from their duties and to keep away from ever partaking of the holy portions during that time of uncleanness. This is set in contrast to a priest with a defect which closed out the previous chapter. He could not perform the duties of a priest, but he was allowed to partake of the holy portions. The restrictions on uncleanness are stricter than those of mere physical defect. This is now seen in the following words. Verse 2, speak to Aaron and his sons. The words of this section are directed only to the priests of Israel and not to the common people. They have a particular set of instructions which are expected to be followed. Verse 2 continues, that they shall separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel and that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the Lord. These words are looking forward to what will be said. The holiness of the Lord and ensuring that his name is glorified is so important that it is highlighted even before the ways in which it can be profaned are given. To understand this, it would be like saying to those being commissioned as officers in the United States Air Force, you will separate yourselves from the uniform of the service so that you do not bring disgrace upon it. One might immediately say, but I'm being given this commission. Why would I separate myself from the uniform which signifies my commission? He is prematurely asked what will next be answered with the occasions for doing what has just been stated. Thus, for the priests of Israel, this is an emphatic statement given in advance of the details. The honor of the Lord is preeminent. The ways for maintaining the honor of that name are now to be defined. Verse 3, say to them, whoever of all of your descendants throughout your generations who goes near the holy things which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has his uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. These words begin to explain how a priest can defile the holy name of the Lord. This first example is, if he were to go near the holy things dedicated by the people while in a state of uncleanness. The holy things include the portions of the sacrifices which the priests were to receive as their food for sustenance. Any instance which renders a person unclean of the many which have been detailed so far in Leviticus had to be purified first. For some things, it simply meant that they had to wait until evening. For others, they may have had to wash themselves or their clothes and so on. You remember all of that from previous sermons. Whatever was required to purify them and which was not exactingly followed meant their uncleanness remained. In such a state, if they partook of the holy things, they were to be cut off from the Lord's presence. This is the only time right here in the five books of Moses that this term, melifani, or from my presence, is used in this way. The normal term for excision from the people of Israel is that soul shall be cut off from among his people. But here, because it is dealing with the priests, they would be cut off from his presence. Mm -hmm. 
It is a solemn warning which would have served Nadav and Avihu well if they had known it. And it is a solemn warning which will be ignored by the sons of Eli in 1 Samuel and which will result in disaster for them. Verse 4. Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or has a discharge shall not eat the holy offerings until he is clean. The leper is specified in chapter 13. The one who has a discharge is specified in chapter 15. Two things in particular are to be considered here. The first is that a person who is unclean is in a different category than a person who has a defect. As I said earlier, a person with a defect could eat of the holy things, but they could not minister before the Lord. But a person with uncleanness could not eat of the holy things. And yet, the unclean person was not permanently banned. Once he was cured, he could resume his duties and partake of the holy offerings. On the other hand, a person with a permanent defect was permanently banned from ministering because of the defect. It is the holiness of the Lord which is on preeminent display here. Verse 4 continues, And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who has an emission of semen. Touching a corpse or anything made unclean by a corpse will be explained in Numbers chapter 19. The emission of semen was detailed in chapter 15. Such things made a person unclean for set periods of time, and they required exacting rites for purification. Verse 5, or whoever touches any creeping thing by which he would be made unclean, or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, Leviticus 11 detailed the creeping things which defiled. The second clause, that of touching a man by whom he would be made unclean, sums up a host of things already detailed, such as a leper, a person with an emission, and so on. Such things as these brought about defilement, which required purification. Verse 6, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until evening, and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. In this case, there are two stipulations. The first is that he would be unclean until evening. One would assume that this would mean that he is clean after that time, as has been the case at other times for various types of contact. However, for the priest, unless he washes his body, he shall not eat of the holy offerings. John Gill, very insightly, takes this as a type for the New Testament that a person who comes to Christ shall not take or partake of the Lord's Supper until they are first baptized. Now, that is not found in the New Testament, and it's a little bit legalistic, but it is an insightful exhortation nonetheless. Both are commanded by the Lord, and to do one without the other does leave a bit of a void in one's full obedience to Christ. If you haven't been baptized as an open profession of your faith, it is right that you do so. Verse 7, And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat the holy offerings, because it is his food. The previous verse required washing, but he remained unclean until the going down of the sun, at which time the new day began. You remember that all pointed to Christ as well. With the coming of the new day, he was again recognized as clean. It was only after this that he could eat of the holy offerings. In essence, he was on a forced fast due to his uncleanness for the duration of that time. This was then an important consideration for the priests to live holy and to watch their conduct at all times. The reason for the specificity here is because, in general, priests were to be held to the very highest of standards at all times. But in the case of such uncleanness, what might otherwise carry a greater penalty due to the office was mitigated. 
Nothing greater was imposed upon them than upon the common people because they needed their daily food. This is something that would have otherwise been deprived of them. Verse 8, whatever dies naturally or is torn by beasts, he shall not eat to defile himself with it. I am the Lord. To die naturally or to die from being torn by beasts meant that the animal had not been properly bled. This was already prohibited to the people of Israel in verse 17, 15. In such a case for the common people, it says that they were to wash their clothes, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. However, for the priest, they were strictly forbidden from this at any time. If they disobeyed, they would defile themselves as priests. In Ezekiel 4, verse 14, Ezekiel adamantly proclaims that he had never done such a thing and found any such thing completely abhorrent. He would never presume to do such a thing, especially because the priests had a greater weight of penalty to face if they presumed to do so. Verse 9, they shall therefore keep my ordinance lest they bear sin for it and die thereby if they profane it, I the Lord sanctify them. Here the term mishmarti or my watch is incorrectly translated in the New King James Version as my ordinance. It says they shall therefore keep my watch. It is a way of saying they shall always be on guard concerning this. Unlike the common people who may accidentally eat of meat which was not properly bled, the priests had no excuse at all. They received their food from the offerings of the people. They were the ones who were in charge of the offerings, and they were responsible for the blood rituals. There was actually no excuse for a priest to ever violate this. If they did, the Lord says that they would bear sin and die. To profane the watch of the Lord was to ignore the Lord who sanctified them. In verse 8, the Lord proclaimed his name, Ani Yehovah. Now he proclaims his authority over them, Ani Yehovah Mekadesham. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Verse 10, no outsider shall eat the holy offering. One who dwells with the priest or a hired servant shall not eat the holy thing. The word translated as outsider here is Zur. It is elsewhere translated as a layman. It comes from a root which means to turn aside as if in lodging. If the priest had someone like an old friend from high school or the like stop by for a visit, this person was not allowed to partake of the holy portions. The second class is a toshav or sojourner. This might be someone who actually lives with the priest or even a non-permanent slave. The third class is a sakir or hired servant. This is a wage earner under a priest. None of these would likewise be allowed to eat of a holy thing. They were not a permanent part of the house and thus they were excluded from partaking. On the other hand, verse 11, but if the priest buys a person with his money, he may eat it, and one who is born in his house may eat his food. In both cases, the people became permanent members of the household. According to Genesis 17, circumcision for such was mandatory, and thus they became as Israelites in this regard. And because of this, it would not be right to deprive them of partaking in what the household itself was entitled to. If they were accepted from this, then the priest would otherwise be under obligation to provide two separate sources of food each day for his home. This was a burden the Lord did not levy upon them. Instead, they were accepted into the rights of the covenant people and into the rights of the priestly household. Verse 12, if the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she may not eat of the holy offerings. When a woman married, she joined a new house. Unless her husband was a priest, she was no longer deemed as a member of a priest's household. Again, the word zur is used. 
He is other than the priestly caste and is not included in its privileges. In such a case, she gave up her right to partake of the holy offerings. Verse 13, but if the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child and has returned to her father's house as in her youth, she may eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. In losing her means of household through widowhood or divorce, she could again be brought under the household of her father and once again partake of the offerings. However, if she bore children, a new household was established with children of a non-priestly father. Thus, she could no longer be brought under his household. She was therefore excluded from the offerings. The verse ends with the same warnings as in verse 10 to show the stringent nature of not allowing outsiders to eat of the offerings. However, verse 14, and if a man eats the holy offering unintentionally, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it. This is a precept which finds its origin in verse 316, or I'm sorry, 516 of the book of Leviticus. In this case, a person somehow unintentionally ate a holy offering. As we know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. In order to make restitution, he was required to restore the original value through a holy offering and then add a fifth to its value. This was to instruct Israel to carefully watch how they conducted their affairs in regards to that which was deemed holy. Verse 15, they shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord. The major question of this verse is, who is they referring to? Some translations just insert the word the priests, assuming that they are the subject. However, the preceding verses pertain to the layman, not the priests, and so it is surely referring to them. Should they partake of the offerings when not authorized to do so, it is they who profane the offerings which have been raised up to the Lord. Remember when David went out and he was given the holy bread by, I think it was Abiathar, the high priest, and uh, at that time he would have had to have made restitution for this. Verse 16, or allow them, what's that? Interesting. Oh, okay, thank you. Verse 16, <laughs> or allow them to bear the guilt of trespass when they eat their holy offerings, for I, the Lord, sanctify them. Again, this is surely speaking of the people and not the priests. And so it should say something like, and bring the burden of the guilt of trespass in their eating. And then again, we read the words almost identical to verse 9. Ki ani Yehovah mekadesham, for I am Yehovah who sanctifies them. That was spoken about the priests before. Now it is speaking about the people here. It is the Lord who sanctifies both. Unfortunately, the people failed to sanctify themselves. It was a chronic problem in Israel, one which led to two exiles and much grief. The witnesses for the first exile called... And they didn't listen, and so off to Babylon they went. The witnesses for the second exile called out, and they continued to ignore the Lord up until the time of Christ's coming. Malachi, 430 years before the coming of Christ, spoke of Israel's constant disobedience of the very precepts which are found in this chapter of the book of Leviticus. The entire book of Malachi speaks against them. But chapter 1 is like reading a line-by-line indictment against them for infractions against these chapters of Leviticus. And so we're going to take a moment and we're going to read Malachi chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, it's the last book in the Old Testament. So you go to Matthew and go back one. That begins with M as well. So we have a pair of M&Ms right there. So, and they're delightful to the taste, I can tell you. Both of these books are marvelous. Here we go, Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, 
and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts. To you, priests, who despise my name, yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your own governor. Will he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor, that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts, who is there even among you? Who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who is in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations." Walking holy before the Lord, for it is he who has sanctified us by his great name. And so in obedience to his word, we will offer nothing blemished or that which is lame. Our sacrifices will be pure and undefiled. What we offer will be of the very best. For through his redemption, we have been reconciled. And in his goodness alone, we find our place of rest. Yes, we shall walk in a holy and righteous way. We shall bring honor to the name of our Lord. For all our lives, through each and every day, we shall be obedient to his magnificent, superior word. Our second thought today is acceptable and unacceptable offerings. It's verses 17 through 33. Verse 17, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, We have gone through the physical requirements to be a practicing priest and also through the requirements for purity among them. Now the same type of precepts will be explained for the animals, which were to be considered acceptable as an offering. Here the words of this verse introduce this new section. Verse 18, speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them, whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, the directions here for both Aaron and his sons, as well as for all of Israel. What is to be offered by the people is to come with a right heart attitude towards the Lord. And what is accepted by the priests is to be acknowledged as right and proper towards him. The people's offerings also include strangers or proselytes. Any person who came to offer to the Lord was under exactly the same obligations. The guidelines for the offerings themselves were detailed in chapter 7 of Leviticus. Verse 19, you shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. The wording here, rather than of your own free will, should say that it may be accepted. 
In other words, the verse is saying that the sacrifice must be a male for it to be accepted. This was to be from the cattle, sheep, or goats. Each of these, as detailed in the past sermons, pictures Christ in their own unique way. Not only did they do so in their nature, but also in that they were to be without blemish, just as Jesus Christ was without spot or blemish in his earthly ministry. Verse 20, whatever has a defect you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. Just as the priests were to be without any defect, the same is true with the offering. In each point, we are to learn that we are to only give that which is perfect to the Lord. In today's world, this does not mean that our bodies must be perfect as then. We went through that last week. Nor must our offerings be perfect in their makeup, but rather both are to be perfect in that they are devoted to God through Christ, who perfectly passes them on to his Father. Each physical application now carries a spiritual meaning in the church age. Verse 21, And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. This verse seems to be a repetition of the previous verses, but it is not. In the instructions for a peace offering, which were found in chapter 3, it says that either could be a male or a female. Thus, this verse is given to distinguish it from what has already been said of the other offerings. The peace offering to fulfill a vow would be based on some type of a promise made to the Lord if he acted, such as in making a vow and facing danger. You read uh, King David in the Psalms and he might say, I vow this to the Lord if you get me out of this or something, and that would be this type of a vow. One made as a free will offering would normally be presented to acknowledge mercies which had been received. Like Hannah, she asked for a child and she was given a child, so she would go and make her offering to the Lord in this type of an offering. In any such offerings, perfection was required. Again, they look forward to what God has done in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. This verse here is rather plain to understand, but a couple curiosities. First, the word blind is actually a noun which is used for the first time in the Bible, ivaron. As a noun, it would be better translated as blindness. Secondly, the word maimed is more often translated as determine or decree. So you wonder, how do those two words match up? The idea is of pointing sharply in a figurative sense. However, in a literal sense, when one points sharply, it will lead to maiming another, such as an animal with its horns. Third, the word yalapet, or scabs, which was introduced last week in chapter 21, is now seen for the very last time in scripture, so you can say goodbye to yalapet. The repetition of the words, you shall not offer, and nor make an offering of fire by them, point to the responsibilities of both laymen and of the priest. They were to both be attentive to what they were offering to the Lord. If you remember from the last chapter, such defects also disqualified one as a priest to the Lord. Verse 23, either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a freewill offering, but for a vow, it shall not be accepted. In this verse, a word is used only one time in the whole Bible, kalat, or too short. This was considered a defect as much as a limb, which was too long. The same type of defect seen in the priest's are also seen here in the animals. However, this verse seems to contradict what was just said in verses 18 through 22, where this was prohibited as a free will offering. 
Some say the verse has been corrupted and it should say you may not offer. The Greek translation of the Old Testament says that you can slaughter them for yourself, but they are not to be offered to the Lord. During the second temple period, it was said that they could be consecrated for the upkeep of the sanctuary, but they could not be sacrificed on the altar. Whichever is correct, the Hebrew of this particular verse presents problems. Verse 24, you shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. The ma'ak or bruised is introduced. It comes from a root meaning to press. One can see how that would then result in a bruise. After that is a second new word, katat, or crushed. It means to crush by beating. A third new word, nathak, or torn away, is seen. It would indicate some part of the animal was actually torn off of it. These, along with animals which were cut, could not be offered to the Lord. Verse 25, nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as the bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. As with the people of Israel, so it was to be with the foreigner. The word here is not the same as that in verses 10 and 18. This word gives the sense of son of the unknown. It would be a person from another land looking to honor the God of Israel. Can anybody think of somebody in the Bible that did that? Her name was the queen of Sheba came up to honor the Lord God of Israel and to meet with Solomon. But yes, Ruth did too, but she came in as a Gentile in a different way. I was specifically thinking of the queen of Sheba. No offering was to be made to the Lord with such defects because in order to represent what is acceptable to a perfect God, there must be perfection in what is offered to him. This is then to be directly relayed to moral issues for those in Jesus Christ. All morality among his people must be in line with his perfect righteousness. One remarkable aspect of this verse is that a new word is introduced here and which is used but two times in all of scripture, mishat, meaning disfigurement or corruption. Now, this animal, if it has this, cannot be offered to the Lord, right? The only other time it is seen is when speaking of Jesus Christ in Isaiah 52, verse 14, where it says, just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred, that word there, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. What was considered unacceptable in these animal offerings is that which made us acceptable to God because of the work of Christ. It was his wrath poured out on the perfect Christ, not the corruption of the fallen world in an animal's defect, which brings us close to him once again. The offering of Christ was marred, but the mars were for our defects, not his. Verse 26, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the final section of the chapter commences with these words. In what is a break from most introductions, the words are spoken to Moses alone. There's no command to relay them to Aaron or to Israel, even though all would hear them when they were read. Verse 27, when a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day and thereafter, it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Any of the three types of sacrificial animals was required to be with its mother for seven days. There are several suggested reasons for this. The first is that they are still weak in the first seven days, and thus it is not a suitable offering to God. An animal of eight days would begin to be alert, able to get out and about, and the like. Secondly, the animal had not yet been given a chance to exist, and the mother had not had a chance to enjoy her child. Thus it is a verse of mercy on both. 
Thirdly, the eighth day, like for circumcision of a child, signifies in the Bible new beginnings. Anytime you see the number eight, it's always new beginnings. The old life is gone, and that which is new lies ahead, even if it is a life of a sacrifice. This then would tie it in with 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, where a child is sanctified by his believing parent. Otherwise, it would be considered unclean. At a certain point, this would no longer be the case, and the child must come to God through Christ. And finally, as a type of Christ, he being the antitype of all suitable sacrifices, was not suffered to die in his infancy, which would have been what Herod wanted, but he died as a man. Likewise, no man can be an acceptable sacrifice to God because of the infancy of their weakness and failings. Rather, all must stand before God in the strength of Jesus Christ alone, who is the perfection of that virtue and who is sacrificed on our behalf if we so choose that most glorious option. Verse 28, whether it is a cow or a ewe, do not kill both her and her young on the same day. A second prohibition is now levied on the sacrifice. However, the word for kill is a general word and doesn't necessarily mean either or both are sacrificed, even though the tenor of the whole passage points to that, at least for one of the animals, if not both of them. It is generally accepted that this here is a verse of mercy. For the animal, yes, but more so for the written bond of mother and child, and for the moral feelings of all who would understand the inappropriate nature of killing both in one day. To do so would blunt the natural sediments of kindness and mercy in the human heart, and here we can think of all of the abortions that go on in the world. It's because we have no kindness and mercy left in our hearts. And this is exactly what that was trying to prevent. Verse 29, And when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. Again, as earlier, the word ratzon in this verse means it should say, offer for your acceptance. Some Bibles will say that. Some will say of your own free will. If it says free will, just line it out and say for your acceptance because that is the correct translation. This is not speaking of a free will offering, but of what follows next, which will make the sacrifice acceptable. Verse 30, on the same day it shall be eaten. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. This is a command repeated from Leviticus 7.15. It is a prohibition similar to that of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 and of the manna in Exodus 16. Both were types of Christ. If you remember how marvelous those two passages were, it was astonishing. Okay? A Thanksgiving offering is something which has been accomplished, such as deliverance from affliction of some sort. God delivered or provided, and so it would not be appropriate for an acknowledgement of it to be dragged out. To consume the offering over more than one day would do just that. Thus, one would be benefiting off of the Lord's deliverance instead of being grateful for it. If there was too much for one person to eat, he should then share the offering with others, such as is explicitly stated in Deuteronomy chapter 12 of this same precept. To not do so would be not showing the thanks that the offering implied. And to not share Christ follows in the same self-centered way. Everybody got that? Mm -hmm. To not share Jesus Christ if you're a saved believer is the most selfish thing that we can do on this planet. Who is saved? Who is truly grateful for that salvation and yet unwilling to share what they have been given in Jesus Christ? 
This then is a theme which is fully developed by the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 of Hebrews. It says, therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Verse 31, therefore, you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord. This and the final two verses of the chapter form the conclusion of this section. Everything that has been submitted is expected to be kept and performed. This is the same pattern which is seen at the end of chapters 18 and 19. What is probable then is that this concluding section covers everything in chapters 20 through 22. They each build one upon another, the conduct of the people, then the conduct of the priests, and then the acceptability of the priests, and then of the offerings. In order to impress upon them the importance of this, he repeats, Ani Yehovah, I am Yehovah. Verse 32, you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The name is what everything centers on. To honor the Lord and to follow his commands is to hallow his name. To do otherwise is to profane his name. Think of Malachi chapter 1 that I read you. And thus he says that he will be hallowed among the people. He will either be hallowed among them or he will be hallowed upon them. The choice was theirs. In verse 9, speaking of the priests, he said, I, Jehovah, sanctify them. In verse 16, speaking of the common people, he said, for I, Jehovah, sanctify them. Now he speaks to all collectively. Ani Yehovah Mikadish Kem. I am Yehovah who sanctifies you. It is a note that all, all are to be holy as he is holy. Verse 33, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Again, as in chapter 11, he ties his redemptive act of bringing the people out of Egypt into their need for sanctification. Does everybody remember what Egypt pictured? Our last life of sin. God redeemed us out of that bondage that we were in. We were bondage under the yoke of the devil. And that's what that's picturing. And he's tying our need for sanctification in with that. He redeemed the people need to act on that redemption. It is the exact same thought that we are given here in the New Testament. The Lord saves. And so we are to respond to that salvation by being obedient, faithful followers of him. We are to conduct our lives in the holy fear of the redemption in which we stand. We are to stay in that, and we are to proclaim Jesus Christ and to be holy as he is holy. Verse 33 finishes with these words, I am the Lord, Ani Yehovah, I am Yehovah. The divine name has been used 21 times in this chapter. Nine of those times he proclaimed his name as who he is. His name represents his nature and his being. In the coming chapter, he will take that name and define it in a way which Israel is to honor and celebrate it throughout their year. Each of the ways that he reveals is a picture of Christ Jesus to come. It is the feasts of the Lord. It is an amazing study. It's going to take a while to get through it. You will love it. I assure you, the feasts of the Lord point to the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and what he did on our behalf. As this is so, then the divine name, Jehovah, is an anticipatory name given to be used until the coming of Jesus Christ. This is an important precept to remember, and one which is missed by many in various offshoots of Christianity which have arisen in the recent past. There is a move away from the name of Jesus Christ, or Yeshua in Hebrew, to the sanctifying names which only looked forward to his completed work. 
It is the name of Christ Jesus, which Paul says is above every name. And it is that name which he says every tongue should confess. Let us not be found deficient in our theology by incorrectly esteeming any other name than that of Christ Jesus. Yehovah has revealed himself, and he is our Lord. He is Jesus. When we read about the Lord's desire for us to be holy as he is holy, all we need to do to get started is to look unto Jesus and to emulate him. It is in this way that we honor God the Father and in no other. If you have been caught up in one of these sects which deviates from this teaching, I would like you to pull yourselves up from it, commit to Christ Jesus, and proclaim his name alone as your hope. I've got a quote for you from Matthew Henry to finish us up today. This sums up his thoughts on the whole chapter. Let us recollect with gratitude that our great high priest cannot be hindered by anything from the discharge of his office. Think of it. These priests have all been hindered by something, either uncleanness or, you know, physical defect. Not so with Christ. Let us also remember that the Lord requires us to reverence his name, his truths, his ordinances and commandments. Let us beware of hypocrisy and examine ourselves concerning our sinful defilements, seeking to be purified from them in the blood of Christ and by his sanctifying spirit. Whoever attempts to expiate his own sin, that means standing before God and saying, see, I earn my way to you, or draws near in the pride of self-righteousness, puts as great an affront on Christ as he who comes to the Lord's table from the gratification of sinful lusts. Nor can the minister who loves the souls of the people suffer them to continue in this dangerous delusion. He must call upon them not only to repent of their sins and forsake them, but to put their whole trust in the atonement of Christ by faith in his name for pardon and acceptance with God. Thus only will the Lord make them holy as his own people. That's Matthew Henry. And I'd like to say what I said earlier before we got started with Usama just in case somebody turned on to the sermon and didn't listen to our fine brother here speaking today, that uh, the Bible asks us to think about our station in this life and to understand that we are not right with God. It is inherent in us that we are not right with God. We have sin in our lives. It was inherited, and we can't get rid of it. We cannot earn our way to being reconciled to God the Father, no matter how much we work. He is infinite. We're finite. The distance cannot be bridged. But Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is God incarnate. He came out of the eternal realm. He united with human flesh. And because he is fully God, he can put his hand on his infinite father. And because he is a human being, he can put his other hand on finite us. And he can make that bridge back that we cannot. And it is through what he did, his work in fulfillment of the law and in the shedding of his blood in fulfillment of that, and then coming out of the grave to prove that he had no sin. He is the one that reconciles us back to our Heavenly Father. If you have never accepted that, you must do that in order to be standing in the presence of God in a happy condition. Otherwise, you're going to go to what's called the great white throne, and he's going to judge you, and you will be cast off for eternity. Let us pray that does not happen. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. Right now. We don't know if we're going to go up to the top of a building in New York City and have an airplane fly into it and we have to jump out because we have a choice of being burnt to death or jumping to our own death. And we saw that. We don't know if we're going to get hit on the way home and get killed. We have no idea. We have no idea what will happen 
in 30 seconds from now, one of us could have a brain hemorrhage like our dear Kelly Carlin did a couple years ago, wakes up, stands up, has a hemorrhage and dies that quickly. She was off into eternity. That's where we stand. So please call on Jesus if you've never done it. Next week, I told you we get some sermons that have a lot of verses. Next week will be one of them. A lot. Leviticus 23, 1 through 3. Three verses. Six you work, one you rest. Do the math. It's the feasts of the Lord, the Sabbath. That'll be our 36th Leviticus sermon. Then I will tell you this as I do each and every week. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if you have a lifetime of sin heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and he can purify you completely and wholly. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? It's not just for, it's not all the good stuff. It's also through you. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Thank you. All right? And I told you that because I give 4,000 words in a sermon of 33 verses, you're not going to remember but one or two precepts. Here's what I want you to remember this week. In order to represent what is acceptable to a perfect God, there must be perfection in what is offered to him. Can any person here offer something perfect to God? Absolutely not. That means that our offerings must go through Jesus Christ. I'll read it again. In order to represent what is acceptable to a perfect God, there must be perfection in what is offered to him. Oh God, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. And from that moment on, everything you offer will be perfect to him. He will be pleased to receive it. Our poem today is called, I Am the Lord. A lot of people were starting to nod off because they've never been here before and they're thinking, oh good, it's over. Hey, we still got 33 (laughs) verses to get through. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, these are the words he was then relaying. Speak to Aaron and his sons that they from the holy things themselves separate of the children of Israel and that they do not profane my holy name. Get this straight. By what they dedicate to me, I am the Lord, so shall it be. Say to them, whoever of all your descendants throughout your generations, according to this word, who goes near the holy things, which the children of Israel dedicate to the Lord, while he has his uncleanness upon him, as you have heard, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron, yes, any of them that is seen, who is a leper or has a discharge, shall not eat the holy offerings till he is clean. And whoever touches anything made by a corpse unclean, or a man who has an emission of semen, if such is seen, or whoever touches any creeping thing by which he would be made unclean before me, or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until evening, so shall it be, and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes with water his body and when the sun goes down he shall be clean a reason for a happy mood and afterward he may eat the holy offerings because it is his food whatever dies naturally or is torn by beasts according to my word he shall not eat to defile himself with it i am the lord they shall therefore keep my ordinance lest they bear sin for it and die thereby if they profane it i the lord sanctify them this is why No outsider shall eat the holy offering, or one who dwells with the priest or a hired servant too shall not eat the holy thing, so I am instructing you. But if the priest buys a person with his money, he may eat it. With this right he is imbued, and one who is born in his house may eat his food. If the priest's daughter is married to an outsider, she may not eat of the holy offerings, it shall be denied her. 
But if the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child and has to her father's house returned, as in her youth, she may eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat it. This right he has not earned. And if a man eats the holy offering unintentionally, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it, and then the debt is ceased. They shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel, which they offer to the Lord, or allow them to bear the guilt of trespass, whether they eat their holy offerings, for I, the Lord, sanctify them, so shall they heed this, my word." And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These are the words he was then relaying. Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the children of Israel, and to them say, Whatever man of the house of Israel, or of the strangers in Israel, as I now relay, who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows, or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the Lord as a burnt offering, yes, any of these profferings, you shall offer of your own free will. Be sure to take careful notes, a male without blemish, from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Whatever has a defect you shall not offer, do not make this gaff, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted, as I tell you now. There shall be no defect in it. This command to you I do submit. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, heed now this word, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short you may offer as a freewill offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. Do not get this wrong. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or cut or torn, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. This to you I now do warn. Nor from a foreigner's hand shall you offer any of these as the bread of your God, because their corruption is in them and defects are in them. They shall not be accepted on your behalf. In this there shall be no approval nod. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, These continued words he was then relaying. When a bull or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall be seven days with its mother according to this word. And from the eighth day and thereafter, it shall be accepted as an offering made by fire to the Lord. Whether it is a cow or a ewe, as to you I say, do not kill both her and her young on the same day. And when you offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, offer it of your own free will. Heed now this word. On the same day it shall be eaten. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord. Therefore you shall keep my commandments and perform them. I am the Lord, so to you I do these things tell. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord, therefore walk circumspectly before me as you trod. Lord God, you have sanctified us, and so now help us to sanctify ourselves as well, to ever emulate Jesus. Yes, our hearts we ask that you so impel May we walk in a manner honorable and right, never deviating from this noble way. May Christ Jesus be our ever-guiding light. May he lead us in the bright eternal day. And we give you glory to you in the highest. Yes, our voice is raised. We bless your glorious name, and forever it shall be praised. Hallelujah and amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful chapter. It's a a little bit long. It's filled with a lot of details that we're not familiar with in our modern world, but we still see Christ in it nonetheless. 
that an animal is never to be offered with a mar in your presence, and yet Christ was marred for our healing and our cleansing. What a thing to believe that you would allow that of your own son, your only begotten son. Thank you, Lord, for that. And Lord, we certainly pray for all of the people that uh, are out there that are with their struggles and their trials in this life and that are having difficulties and have uh, comes immediately to mind is our brother, Paul, who is at home right now and still still going through difficulties. And we're hoping for good news this week on his uh, treatments. And Lord, we certainly pray for anybody else that is facing trials or difficulties now or that they may face in the week ahead, that they will be strong and persevere in you. Lord, we uh, commit the Lord's table to you, knowing that we are unworthy to take it, but because of our Lord Jesus. And so it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.